All right, let's, uh, let's pause here for a moment. I'm going to pray and then we're going to read a passage of scripture. We begin a new conversation today and I am really excited about what we get to talk about here. So let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we open our hands before you today. We uh, just sort of assume this posture of receiving. And in a time, you know, that has been so challenging, that has stretched us, that has exhausted us, that has depleted us in so many different ways, I'm afraid that sometimes, God, that, that causes us to be cynical, to be unexpectant, to assume the worst. But God, this morning we want to open our hands to receive because we do believe that every good and perfect gift comes from you, that you want to give us good gifts. And in the midst of of the challenge of this particular day, this particular year, God, we need to receive from you your strength, your peace, your grace, your mercy, your love, God. So we just open our hands right now, expectant, hopeful, trusting, receptive. Thank you for the great love you have extended to us for the tangible demonstration of that love in your son, Jesus. We pray now in his name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, the Bible is also on our Discovery Christian Church app. So another reason to download that, very easy to uh, find where we are. Uh, through that as well. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read 10 verses and, uh, and then we're going to talk about this a little bit. We will be in this particular passage of scripture for three weeks starting today. I'm really excited again about what we get to talk about. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. I want you to remember that phrase, the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith This is not from yourselves. It is the gift, right? We receive the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. Now, as we've said, and as we are are probably all aware at this point, This is the first Sunday in which we get to have a live, in-person worship 
gathering. And this is such a great gift. Today, though, here in this digital space, um, what we're going to do is explore the teaching that we did uh, in the live gathering. Uh, I'm going to say a lot of the same stuff, but I'm going to expand on it even more. So if you're tuning in this morning during the, the live gathering, here's some bonus content for you. And then for those of you who maybe are watching this later on, I hope that some of the extra stuff that we explore here allows us to um, go a little bit deeper in conversations and groups and things like that. Now, it's fascinating to me that of all the places we could have ended up having a live in-person gathering for the first time since this pandemic started, it's interesting to me that it would be on the grounds of a Jewish synagogue. wasn't the plan wasn't something that that we kind of strategically had in mind, but as we sort of asked around and explored different options for the fall, that was the one that the the doors just opened. And they've been so generous and kind to us. And there's this beautiful new relationship that is forming through all of that. But it's interesting to me that our first public gathering would be on the grounds of a Jewish synagogue. Also, months ago. We knew that this series was coming, and I knew that we wanted to talk about Ephesians chapter 2 and the, the vision for the church that we get in this beautiful chapter. One of the things that, that Paul, the writer, talks about here, and we'll get to this a little bit later, is the unity that is now available to Jews and Gentiles, one of the fundamental divisions of the world in which Paul lived. There's this great unity now because of what Jesus has done. So isn't it interesting that we would be on the grounds of a Jewish synagogue as we get back together for the first time in six months and consider this particular passage of Scripture. Now, the other interesting thing about where we gathered live today is it's in a redwood grove, which is one of my favorite. Like redwood trees are my, one of my favorite things in the whole world. I love redwood forests. The Santa Cruz Mountains is, is where I hope to be uh, my, you can scatter my ashes there, Discovery, whenever I pass away. Uh, I just love being in those, those forests, that space. It's, it's, it's fresh. It, 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 it's so big and majestic. It pulls me out of myself, right? I can be in all kinds of funky sort of internal things, and then I get into a redwood forest, and it's like, oh, yeah. There's so much. Uh, this world is so much bigger than my own stuff, right? There, there are these beautiful, majestic trees, draws us upwards, gets us from small to big. And yet here's the interesting thing about redwood trees and redwood forests. It's very difficult for a redwood tree to survive on its own. And when we go into a a redwood grove or a forest, again, we look up and we see how big and tall they are and all that kind of stuff. And that's part of what is so beautiful about them. But the magic, if you will, of a redwood forest is not what you see up in the sky, it's what's going on underneath the surface. Because how a redwood survives is through its interconnectedness with the other trees in the forest. People who study these things see that underneath the ground is this huge web of interconnected roots, so interconnected that it's hard to tell which root belongs to which tree. Redwood trees cannot live without each other. There's a sermon there. Are you with me? Now, we are just getting started here. I begin with those things because so much of what we are going to talk about 
in this passage from Ephesians 2, I think is, all, is so connected to where we are going to be gathering for the next couple of weeks, live and in person, and how amazing is it that that lined up that way. Now, let's scope back out here for just a moment. I want us to think for a minute about the growth of the early church. This letter to the Ephesians, the, the, the church in Ephesus, one of the first uh, churches uh, to be planted outside of kind of the, the home base area. And, and this guy, Paul, who is writing this letter was all about planting churches in these new places where the good news of Jesus had not gone yet. Now, one of the things that, that people have done is try to understand, okay, how did this happen? How did this thing explode? How did this, this 120 people who were so afraid and downtrodden after Jesus died, how did it go from that to basically toppling the Roman Empire in 300 years? It's fascinating to read some of these studies about how this happens. Again, think about all the things that the early church had going against it. Their leader had been executed. Their story was, yeah, he got executed, but he came back to life three days later. And while 400 people at least saw the resurrected Jesus, this would definitely have fallen into the conspiracy theory category if it happened today, right? The, The leadership of this movement was scared and timid. And then when the ball started to roll... They got written off by all different kinds of people as just, well, it's just a weird Jewish sect. It will die out. Then, on top of all of that, they got persecuted, first by the Jewish leadership and then later by the Roman Empire. Now, it turns out that this persecution was actually an important part of their growth. We're going to get into this more at some point in this series, but for now, I just want you to notice a couple of things. Acts chapter 1. Right before Jesus returns to the Father, he gives his team their marching orders. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And just a quick side note, the Holy Spirit plays a significant role in the growth of the early church. I'm not trying to downplay that or gloss over that. That needs to be said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Watch this progression in Jerusalem. And then in Judea, which is kind of the next ring out, and then Samaria, which is the next ring out after that, and then to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Now fast forward to Acts chapter 8. Lots of stuff happens between chapter 1 and chapter 8. But by chapter 8 in the book of Acts, they're still hanging out in Jerusalem. Right? They haven't made it to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth at this point. And look at what happens in verse 1 there. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. Where were they scattered? Throughout Judea and Samaria. Hmm, interesting. American Christians spend an inordinate amount of time worrying, complaining, Uh, about persecution, crying persecution whenever something happens that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But what if persecution is actually what we need in order for the mission to move forward? Have you thought about that? 
Now, from that point on, from the persecution, the scattering that happens as things spread to Judea and Samaria, things start to move rather quickly. And by the end of the book of Acts, this guy, Paul, who again writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is in Rome. Rome, the city, the ends of the earth and the imaginations of many people who would have been reading this book for the first time. Paul's in custody. And yet, even in those circumstances, this is how the book of Acts ends. Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The writer, Luke, of the book of Acts wants us to see, look how far this thing has gone. And it's going to keep going because of the boldness of the people who are sharing the good news. Now, after these events, this is probably around 60 AD, around these, or after these events, the early experiences, or the early church experiences even more growth, at times explosive growth, and it again culminates in the toppling of the Roman Empire about 200 years later. So again, this question, how does this group of 120 frightened Jesus followers who are hiding out in a room in Jerusalem, how did they upend the bloodiest, the most dominant empire in human history to that point? Well, as I just said, the Holy Spirit obviously has an important role to play in this, but there were some other factors as well. And this is where some of those studies come into play here. One of the most comprehensive studies comes from a historian and sociologist named Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark wrote a book in the late 90s called The Rise of Christianity. And then check out this subtitle. This is so awesome. How the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. (laughs) Now Stark, it's a big book. He lists out a bunch of different reasons explaining how this happens. But there's a sort of top two that he names a, a few times. Here's, here's, I think, the key quote. He says it this way. The Roman Empire was stingy with their resources, right? The, the, the sort of Roman cultural ethos was, I hang on to my money. I definitely don't give it to people who are in need. Stingy with their resources, but then promiscuous with their bodies. If you think our concepts of human sexuality are twisted in the 21st century, just go back and, and do a little bit of study on Roman sexual ethics, it will blow your mind. It was crazy. Stingy with their resources, promiscuous with their bodies. Said another way, they gave nobody their money and everybody their body. And then along come the Christians, the little Jesuses. And they gave practically no one their bodies and everyone their money. They gave practically no one their bodies and everyone their money. This is fascinating, right? These critical ways in which the the Christians, the little Christ, that's what the word Christian means when you break it down in the Greek, little Jesus, little Christ, they were different. They were very distinct from the dominant culture in which they found themselves. And this is where this new conversation counterculture comes from. This is what this is all about. Now, during the course of 2020, even before the pandemic hit, we've been considering this concept of renewal. What would it look like for God to move in our world in a powerful and tangible way, much like he did in the early church? 
much like he's done in other parts of church history all around the world, what would it look like for God to move here in Davis, in California, in the United States of America in a powerful and tangible way in the 21st century? God knows we need this. I want to show you one quick graphic. Take a look at this. Now what you see there is that during this pandemic, people are dropping out of church. All of the trend lines were going down before this happened anyway. And as I've said a few times, my sort of personal theory of this pandemic time is that it's just amplified and magnified trends that were already happening. And so this disconnecting or leaving church that we've seen building for the last couple of years, this moment has just, again, amplified and magnified those trends. Now, what's interesting, though, is that people still have very, very significant spiritual questions are, are no less spiritual than they were before. They're just not finding compelling answers in Christian community. And I think one reason for this, maybe the prime reason for this, is that we are not countercultural. We're not countercultural. We have either acquiesced to the culture or we are out of step with the culture. We're fighting it in bizarre ways or we just blend in and disappear. What we are not doing is presenting a compelling alternative. We're not telling a different story, but this is exactly what the early church did. They told a different story. Again, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but they imagined a different world and they helped to create it. They helped to create a different way of being in this world. And this is what this conversation is all about. What does it look like for us to be different, distinct, to be a counterculture? Now, we're going to do this in three parts. Part two will begin in November, and we're going to consider that generous with their resources aspect of the early church. It's going to come off of our outreach practice. That's our next practice in the practices conversation. And we're going to talk about things like justice and mercy and serving people in a countercultural way. Not just generous with our money, but generous with our whole lives. What does that look like? How can we tell a different story in that way. Part three, which will probably come at the beginning of next year, 2021, we're going to consider the stingy with their bodies aspect of the early church. How can we regain a sense of human dignity and affirmation of bodies, a healthy sexuality? But part one, where we are today and for the next couple of weeks, we need to do some foundational work here. We need to remember this call to be different. And we're going to consider, again, the, the, the passage in Ephesians 2, not just the 10 verses we read here a moment ago, but the whole, the whole chapter over the coming weeks. But the big, big idea comes, I think, from these words found in a different part of the New Testament, a, a letter that a guy named Peter wrote to another church. 1 Peter chapter 2 he says this, this incredible uh, affirmation and calling over this church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that, 
okay, for a reason, for a purpose, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Listen to those, those phrases again. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, special possession. When we start to follow Jesus, we don't go on this journey alone. It's not a solo spiritual quest. We join a people, a family, a community. Again, this thing called the church. And it is fundamentally different from other communities. It is intended, designed, supposed to be a unique culture, a counter culture. Now, this is difference, not just for the sake of being different. We're different because we step into the stream of what God is doing in the world. And what God is doing, it, it, it defies, it protests, it works against, it subverts, it upends the way our world normally works, right? That phrase that Paul uses, the ways of this world. Now, there are a lot of different ways that people and churches have interpreted this call to be a counterculture over the years. One very help, unhelpful way in our day and age has, has been to see this as a call to fight culture wars. Culture wars uh, miss the point for so many different reasons, but I think primarily because they direct our energies at fighting expressions of the culture so it gets at the surface of what's sort of happening up here while ignoring the more important call, the, the more important things going on underneath the surface, this call to be different, to live differently, to operate from a completely different place than, than what the rest of the world is doing. This is what the writer Paul is after in Ephesians chapter 2. Really, in Ephesians 1 through 3, he is speaking identity and affirmation over this church, much like, much like Peter does in that passage we just read. But he wants this young church living in the midst of the Roman Empire. He wants them to have an imagination for it. He wants to fire their dreams and vision for a different kind of world. And so Paul starts off by talking about death. <laughs> Wait, what? Why does he start there? I think Paul begins here because he knows that this is what we know. We know death. It is the way of the world, as he says. We know death. We experience it in so many ways. We fight death with even more death. Again, the Roman Empire, maybe the, the bloodiest, deadliest human organization in all of human history. The American Empire today, of course, the leading provider of weapons to the world. We know death. We fight death with more death. This year, we've seen over a million people die around the world from COVID. 200,000 people in our country. We know death. But look at what Paul says. Okay, he starts there, but look at what he says as he opens this chapter. Verse 1, you were dead. You were dead. Verse 5, we were dead. Again, past 
tense. In other words, this is no longer true. Wait a minute. We know death. We know this is how the world works. We were dead. Something else is going on here. A different world is possible. How? Verse 5, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. In Christ. Paul starts off talking about death, but that's only because that's where we all start. What he really wants this church, this community to see is that they now live in a world, a culture that is not defined by death, but by life. He doesn't use this word directly here, but what he wants them to see is that they are a resurrection community. They live from a whole different place. Yes, the way of the world is death, but we are a resurrection people. And so, what does a world, what does a community, what does a culture built on the value and affirmation of life look like? What does it mean to live from a place of resurrection and not death? Well, one of the primary manifestations that counterculture is happening, that a God-focused, kingdom-centered counterculture is actually happening, that resurrection community is being built, is that divided groups of people start uniting. Let me say that again. One of the primary manifestations that counterculture is happening is that divided groups of people start uniting. Where is resurrection community happening? Where where different uh, separated groups of people are coming together. It's where we begin to recognize that we are much more like those redwood trees than we care to admit sometimes, right? We are interconnected. Ephesians 2.15 His purpose, God's purpose, was to create in Himself one new humanity. There is something way bigger going on. There is something new and fresh and unprecedented going on. Divided people are being brought together. God is creating a new humanity. Are you with me? Now, the implications of this are massive and we could spend hours exploring what they all are. My hope is that you are able to do that in groups over the course of the next couple of weeks. Begin to imagine, okay, well, what does this look like for us? But here's the one thing that I want us to consider right now in this moment this morning. In the midst of all the deaths that we've experienced in the last six months, both literally and metaphorically, in the midst of all the divisions that we see in the church, both our church, but really the larger church, that we see in our country, in our global worlds, in the midst of this dark and troubling moment, here's the question for you right now. Have you lost hope that a different world is possible? Have you lost hope that this kind of resurrection community, that this sort of countercultural world is possible? Have we lost our imagination for a counterculture that can upend empires and see God move in powerful and real and tangible ways? Do we have a white-hot, vision and yearning for resurrection 
community. To see a, a group of people built around the value and principle of life, not the value and principle of death. Have we lost it? Or, or do we protest? Do we say a new humanity is possible? Oh, death, where is your sting? Have we lost our imagination? Or are we ruggedly and stubbornly together living resurrection? Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we do confess that uh, we open our, our phones, our computers, we turn on the TV and we see the news and we just go into despair. It is so easy to get to that place of hopelessness, of cynicism, of I don't think another world is possible. But God, you have done it before so many times. You are doing it in parts of our world right now. God, we want to experience this here in this time and in this place. Resurrection community. New humanity. Divided people being brought together in Christ. Not, not around a, the brand of a church or a you know, particular social cause, but in Jesus being made new into something totally different than what we've experienced before. God, we long for this. We yearn for this. We contend for you to move in this way again. And we, as we started, are open, receptive, ready for you to move in us and through us to build a new humanity in this place. God, we pray earnestly and wholeheartedly for you to do it again. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, in this, in this passage today, if you go through the, the whole uh, chapter, at least six times Paul says, with Christ or in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, raised with Christ, made alive in Christ, made one in Christ. The foundation of everything that Paul is talking about, this vision for a new humanity, a new thing, a counterculture, it all comes through Jesus. It happens when we are bound together in Christ. We remember this truth, that we are made alive, that we are raised up, that we are new creations in Christ. We remember this in this meal called communion. There are many different ways in which we remember and celebrate this, but it's these particular elements. Jesus invites us into this, and then we are encouraged to do this every time we gather, to break this bread and to drink this cup, to remember what he has done for us so that we may experience this aliveness, this community that's built on life, not death, this resurrection counter culture. And so we come to this table, we come to this meal remembering that we are all in this together. Common humanity that each of us needs grace. Each of us needs 
Jesus, the love of God to change us, to transform us, to make us new. Counterculture is only possible around this table where we celebrate the good news that resurrection has happened and is happening and will continue to happen, that we were dead, but we are now alive in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. When you're ready, take and eat the body and blood of Christ.